Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our seventh day of our 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies project at Attention to Detail. I'm coming to you from a new, hopefully higher quality studio than my the one corner of my own apartment that's quiet. I'm now in Ann Arbor, my, my hometown, and I'm joined by a very special guest, a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and Mahler enthusiast, Richard Friedman. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jacob. Delighted to be with you. Excellent. So I wanted to, I wanted to start just by asking you kind of... Um, you're, you're a law professor, and but you, you mentioned to me that you're also a big Mahler enthusiast. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with the music of Mahler, why you particularly like Mahler, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, a, a couple of things. I mean, the, we're going to be talking about the Fifth Symphony, and I don't remember when I first heard it, but I do remember the first time I uh, saw it performed, and it was right here in Ann Arbor, only about a half a mile from where we are at uh, Hill Auditorium, one of the great concert halls in North America. And it was uh, 1987, my first month in Ann Arbor, September. It was Leonard Bernstein and the uh, the Vienna, and oh my goodness, uh, it was it was memorable. It's like you know, you, occasionally you go to a ball game that uh, yeah. you remember years later, and that was a performance. Oh wow! I remember thirty two plus years later. My, yeah. So it was it was Bernstein himself. Bernstein wow. himself, and wow. uh, and he he poured it all into it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great way. People, I don't know that everyone. You know, a lot of people I think have heard of Ann Arbor. I don't know that everyone knows that Ann Arbor has one of the premier concert series in the nation and one of the best concert halls in the country. And often when orchestras like the Vienna Phil tour, they stop in California, in Chicago, in Ann Arbor, and in New York. And so we get, yeah. That was my understanding that he would not take the Vienna to many places in the United States. Yeah. But he, uh, but he came here. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, uh, I spoke to a um, one of my conducting, not colleagues, but uh, a really a famous conductor who I was I was assisting one time, who had conducted here several times. He said um, uh, Ann Arbor was his favorite place to conduct. Um, excellent. So we are today, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about Mahler's Fifth Symphony. I also wanted to ask you: Is there just right off the bat? Is there anything about this symphony that? you particularly like or the reason why you uh, gravitate towards this one? Well, yeah, I, I, I like the absence of uh, vocalists. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, to me, it just yeah. seems like a, a purer symphony uh, than, uh, uh, than some of the others. So, uh, and it's, um, to say compact, I mean, it's an hour 10 minutes, hour 15 uh, uh, that would be overstating it, but uh, there's just so much going on uh, in every uh, in every uh, different way, and it uh, it's it's just an all enveloping experience to me. Yeah, and it's I I actually think it's a great point with the we if we think about the progression of the symphonies to this point, we've reviewed the first four, and we've now done the sixth and the seventh, which along with the fifth makes up kind of a trilogy of middle symphonies of, as you mentioned, no vocalist. They're really absolute symphonies in the sense that there's no program attached to them by Mahler. And like you said, 
despite the seemingly long length, actually very compact musically. And I think one of the ways that we can try to figure out what's going on in these pieces, it's not maybe as easy because there's no text, there's no specific program that's given to us. So we have to look even more at the music, but it also opens up some more interpretive, more kind of subjective questions that makes it interesting to listen to. So let's let's dive into the actual symphony. It was written in 1901 and 1902. Mahler seemed to write symphonies in, in two-year chunks. And at this point, uh, we've mentioned that he, he was really moving much more towards a, a philosophy of music that valued absolute rather than programmatic music so far. Fewer program notes, no text, as you mentioned. Um, and he also discovered, really dove into and discovered the music of Johann Sebastian Bach in the year 1900 and 1901, uh, which really introduced him to this entire world of, of what we call polyphony, counterpoint, the interaction of many voices, which is a key element of a lot of Austro-German symphonic composition. And so these three symphonies, five, six, seven, are much more akin to the symphonies of Brahms, of Beethoven, of Mozart, all the way back to a composer like Bach. He met, very important in his life, he met a woman named Alma Schindler in late 1901 who would become his wife. And so the fourth movement of this symphony is, is dedicated to her, and he completed the symphony in, in 1902. So we're going we're to dive into the music of, of the actual symphony, but what we're looking for, I think, some of the questions that we might try to answer are not so much about uh, an actual programmatic narrative or something like that, but the, the inner program of this piece and what, what some of the interpretive takeaways might be given that we don't have any text, we don't have any clues like that, but, but we still want to figure out what this music is all about and, uh, and what, what he's trying to say in this piece. So let's listen. We'll start with the first movement. Let's listen to the very beginning of the first movement, one of the most iconic moments in, in all of Mahler, and then we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it. your take on a, on a couple of things. Um, one is, I, I wonder to uh, what extent, perhaps self-consciously, he had uh, the opening of Beethoven's Fifth in mind, with those, uh, those opening four notes. And um, the other is, uh, it, it certainly sounds like a funeral march, which um, uh, is maybe an unusual way of opening a, a symphony, but I'm wondering about the, the sort of militaristic aspect uh, yeah, those are the two things that uh, 
I was very curious about. Yeah. So 100%, the opening, we hear this, the four note figure, as you said, very evocative of the opening of, of Beethoven's fifth, which goes, as we, many of us might know. And writing a fifth symphony for anyone in the shadow of Beethoven, they all felt, Brahms didn't even write a fifth symphony, he was so intimidated, but Brahms's first symphony also uses this motif that, that quotes back to Beethoven. And as you mentioned, very clearly Mahler trying to set from the outset homage to Beethoven, and that becomes the predominant rhythm that we hear throughout the, the movement. And I think it's... We, the, one thing we have to look for in the absence of text is these kind of semantic uh, clues that Mahler gives us as to the, this inner program to the piece. And Beethoven's Fifth is, is a really famous symphony for many reasons, one of which is that it was really the first symphony to give us this German romantic narrative of what they call Sturm und Drang, or Struggle to Triumph, where the first movement is this stormy movement in C minor, and it eventually gets transfigured into this triumphant C major. And so from the outset, I think we, we get a clue that maybe this is going to be a similar struggle to triumph type of symphony. And it's also an excellent point. It's a very odd way to open a symphony with a funeral march. Um, we might expect that Beethoven wrote a funeral march himself, but it was the second movement and of the of the third symphony, and and we wouldn't expect this from a first movement. And I think we'll actually find uh, that this is a very abnormal first movement in a lot of ways. But as you mentioned, it's very militaristic, and this is something that permeates a lot of Mahler. We've already reviewed the first movement of the second symphony, which is also a funeral march and also very militaristic. Some of the first movement of the third is very militaristic. And it's, uh, I don't exactly know why, why Mahler had this, this militaristic uh, quality to all of his funeral marches, but he often talked about uh, the battle of, of the, the soul or the psyche with these kind of, he was a kind of tortured individual and he viewed a lot of overcoming his uh, torment as a battle. And so I think that is some element of that makes its way into the, the militaristic music of this, this first movement. So it's a, as I mentioned, it's a really abnormal first movement and maybe uh, the abnormalities of this movement can shed some light on, on what he's trying to say, but I want to play for you a few other thematic ideas that we, we hear that come back again and again in this movement that are, are part of this opening section. So let's just listen to a couple of those as well. So a very different, a contrasting 
character to this this funeral march music, almost elegiac. And then we get we get really three characters in the opening, all mournful but all different sides of of one coin, maybe. So let's listen to the last thematic idea that will come back several times over the course of this movement. So after this opening section, which we might think of as an A section, we get a very stormy trio. And interestingly, uh, first movements are usually not in the form of a what we call a scherzo or a rondo. Those are forms that go something like A-B-A or A-B-A-C-A, which have this kind of refrain that comes back of this, this opening music. And this movement is, and so it's, it's one of the abnormalities that, uh, of, of many that exist in this movement that we don't actually open with a sonata. It's, to date, the only symphony that Mahler wrote that doesn't open in a sonata, and the other two symphonies from this trilogy do. And so we're left wondering why this particular movement is not also in, in sonata form, which, which might clarify itself later. But then we go into a exceedingly stormy trio section, and so we'll, we'll listen to a little bit of that music. Listening to this again, it uh, and I think maybe I had this sense even more in the second movement. You, you always have the the feeling that um, uh, if if the um, if it's tempestuous, it, you you have the feeling that maybe a resolution is right around the corner. Yeah. And if it's and if it's triumphant, you have the feeling that menace is right around the, yeah. the corner at, at all times. Uh, right. You, you say it's a tormented soul, and I uh, boy, it, yeah. it, it really. <laughs> It really comes out, I think. Yeah, and you mentioned to me that you were you were 
kind of curious why the trio is so wild yeah. Yeah. And, and stormy. And as you mentioned, when you have these stormy passages that, that will come in the second movement as well, I let this play just a little bit because I wanted us to hear right at the end of this passage, we hear something that goes... There's this one moment where it feels like the music opens up and we're, we're going to come out of this storminess somehow. And as you, as you, you know, it feels like some sort of resolution is around the corner, but it often gets quashed. And I, we'll keep that theme in our mind because it, it will come back. And one thing that Mahler is such an expert at doing is giving us moments, we'll see in, in the rest of the symphony, giving us little moments to cling on to that he might come back to at some other key moment and jog our memory of this one moment of respite amidst much of this tumultuous, tumultuous music. So, as I mentioned, this is kind of an ABA form. We hear a lot of this same funeral march music again. And it's actually, it's an ABACA or ABABA form, which is a scherzo rondo type form. We don't need to worry too much about the terms, but a little later in the movement, we get the the next sort of trio, trio two, if we want to call it that. And let's listen to a little bit of that music as well. And I, I will listen carefully because it's a very different character from the first trio music, not nearly as stormy, but just listen for that, what we just heard. Because key moment in the second trio, we'll hear that exact same figure come back, give us a moment of, of uplift. So here we get very, very different music. Uh, almost, uh, it, Mahler was was famously culturally Jewish, and, and at this point was working in the Opera of Vienna, where he had been forced to convert to, to Catholicism to to hold his job. And so it's interesting that music that seems to fit into the kind of Jewish folk idiom that he would have heard as a kid makes its way into so much of his music, like like here. And again, buried in the very end, it's almost, it's hard to even hear, but we hear at the end of that clip. The same figure that we heard at the end of the first trio, this brief moment of, of, of sunniness. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, given that he had uh, converted for professional reasons, 
whether it kind of went against that to uh, to refer to uh, Jewish folk music. I mean, would that have been uh, recognized? Would that have perpetuated the sense of him as a Jewish composer? Yeah, I think so. And I think he faced a lot of anti-Semitism yeah. in, the, in the job despite uh, having kind of seemingly, well, to the, to the public superficially yeah. converted. But it's almost, we're left wondering if it's almost... Uh, like a composer like Shostakovich, who was seen, he, who worked under the regime of, of of Stalin and the USSR, who was very, who wrote very subversive music often and tried to uh, code messages into his music about his true intentions. And Mahler's a really interesting case because we have, for example, the Second Symphony is is based on a lot of Christian doctrine. But it's interesting. I was even I was. Uh, preparing also the Eighth Symphony, which I'm going to review tomorrow. And it's a little digression, but the beginning of the Eighth Symphony goes... is the melody. And if you break that melody down really closely, it's, it's the exact same melody as... Which we sing at Hanukkah. Yeah, Rock of Ages. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. sure. Um, you know, it, it also reminds me of uh, the going back to the point we were discussing earlier. Uh, it said that at uh, Jewish ceremonies, there's always joy and there's always sorrow. Uh, yeah. So that uh, at a funeral, even a funeral, you drink uh, wine. At a wedding you uh, celebrate, but you break the glass. Uh, right. So, so there's, always, there's always that mix. Yeah, yeah. My, my grandfather, who was uh, very culturally Jewish, but also he loved, he loved the music of Mahler. And I, rem- I mean, he had, I loved talking to him about Mahler because he had such a strong sense of this idea of there's this kind of, yeah, when there's joy, there's a little bit of pain. When there's pain, there's a little bit of joy. And uh, it permeates so much of, yeah. of the music, yeah. So we hear, to close this movement, I'll point out one last thing in this, this first movement. Um, we close in a very peculiar fashion. We get this kind of quintessential Malarian collapse of the music, and then it sputters to a finish. And let's just listen to the, to the end of this movement. So I'll let our listeners listen to the the very end of the movement, but we hear this kind of cataclysmic collapse that indicates that any of this as any of this little glimmer of hope that we may have seen in some of these trios has been squashed, and as I mentioned, it sputters to the end. Any last thoughts on the first? Should we go on to the second movement? Let's move on. Yeah, but the second movement, my personal. Favorite movement, and I think maybe my—I've said this already several times—so it's it's losing 
credibility, but I think this may be my favorite movement of, of any Mahler symphony. So a really stormy movement. And these first two movements make up the first of what will become three parts of this symphony. And the parts are actually important. We have the first two movements, we have the third movement by itself, and the fourth and the fifth. And each part kind of constitutes its own closed symphonic system, if you will, and there are a lot of connections between the movements of the parts, and there are some interpart connections as well. So now, interestingly, in the second movement of our symphony here, we get our sonata form, which we would have expected from the first movement. And let's listen to the, the opening of this second movement, now taking the place of really a first movement, and you can hear this, this demonic, uh, stormy character right off the bat. interesting music to start. One thing that we immediately again get a clue about, not that we need it because we can kind of hear it in the music, but we get these semantic clues from Mahler. We hear this big leap that goes, excuse me, which we've heard actually in a Mahler symphony before. In the second symphony, when we're hearing the apocalypse, we hear... This, this is a clue for us that somehow this is also apocalyptic music. We also hear the trumpet plays, which comes in the ending of the first, the, the, the last movement of the first symphony, which is titled From the Inferno to, to Paradiso. And so this is clearly inferno music. And I think it's setting us up for yet another one of these inferno to paradise narratives. Um, yeah. It still seems to me that at times there's a touch of whimsy in some of the music. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I find f fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, w one thing that's so remarkable is that um, it feels... I, I, I think you mentioned this to me before, but it feels... Uh, yeah, whimsical is the best word. It, it, it shifts from, from different characters so seamlessly and so quickly. And also it almost... It almost feels improvisatory. The, the beginning of this um, is actually very hard to conduct because it's, it's like out of rhythmic time. It's, it's very improvisatory, and you have to get 70 players to line up in this very improvisatory passage. But yeah, one of the remarkable elements of his composing is his ability to introduce all of this whimsy, which is... It's evocative of the way our minds work in a way that they jump from place to place, and it's not a very rational uh, progression of thoughts all the time. So to to add to this whimsy and this quick shifting of mood, we get a totally different character for the second theme of this sonata. As we've mentioned, sonatas are all about two themes that contrast with each other, and the the 
the contrast leads to some sort of reconciliation at the end of the form. And here we definitely hear the ultimate contrast between these, these two themes. So interestingly, we're in a totally different world, a kind of fragmented lyrical world. We still hear our idea from the from the beginning, suggesting this is still still painful inferno type music. Um, and then, as a sonata generally unfolds, we take these two ideas, we develop them, we transform them exactly what Mahler does. We come back to the storminess of the, the opening. But a key moment we need to, to highlight is where is we've talked already on uh, some of our breakdowns about the idea of a, a breakthrough, which is a term that uh, Adorno, one of the most famous Mahler critics, introduced. And it's this idea that you kind of split open the form and you see some vision or some some otherworldly moment that is inserted right in the middle of what's happening. Very quick character change as always. And we get the first one here um, with a really a, a passage that sounds like he's almost frozen time. So let's listen to that passage. curious as a as a as a listener when you when you hear something like this what is there anything you you make of this or it's a very confusing moment in a way I, I think my sense was something's coming yeah right it, it, it uh, there, there are portions of this movement that uh, almost felt like uh, uh, movie music yeah they could have been used uh, you know that there's there's the menace lurking right exactly yeah and I think so one of the most genius elements of Mahler is that we have this feeling that something something really drastic is yeah. is coming, and the music we get following this is actually just some more developmental music, not what we would expect, and it's not until actually much later in this movement or in the next movement where this moment is clarified. And so one of the challenges of listening to Mahler in real time is that you're, uh, to catch all of these things is incredibly difficult. That's why they're worth many, many listens. But this moment is hard to hear in the context of, there's, in a context of a performance and know what it's doing there, especially when it gets clarified 15 minutes after the fact in real time. But hopefully we can, we can show... Uh, where this comes back at, at various points later. 
So then we, we get this moment, and as I mentioned, we go back to kind of some of this fragmented music of our, our second theme. And I want to point out one important moment where we, to connect the two movements of this part, we, we're going along, as you mentioned, there's a lot of military music. We get some more military-esque march music. And then we get another kind of breakthrough moment where we have a vision back to the first movement of this piece somehow, and we've transported ourselves back to the funeral march. So we hear one of the lyrical themes from the first movement, almost like a, like a memory, um, a recollection of what we've heard before, but it really, it, it kind of connects musically these two very different movements of the, of the first part. And then we come to, I think, the crux of this movement and the crux of a lot of this piece, because we get two moments uh, in, this, in this movement, towards the end of this movement, where we get these triumphant breakthroughs and I'll, I'll play both of them for you the first one a very short moment that almost immediately collapses let's listen to that and then we'll we'll listen to the the bigger one in a in one sec This this one moment, just brief window, yeah. And then there's sort of a cascading. It's yeah, know, it's, it's collapsing. It's exactly, not, it's not going to last. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. interestingly, a little foreshadowing. We hear this is ultimately going to be a key that we don't want to arrive at. This this breakthrough arrives in in A major, and the key, the main key of this movement is A minor, and we collapse from A major to A minor, which is Coincidentally, the, the main idea of the Sixth Symphony to follow this falling figure, it signifies some sort of deep tragedy. But importantly, we don't need to worry about that right now. Importantly, we've missed the key that we're actually aiming for. And so we get some more music. We get, this is the recapitulation. We hear our two themes come back. And then we get our real breakthrough, the moment that we've actually been striving for in this movement in the right key of, of D major. And let's listen to that moment where... This, this idea gets much more fully fleshed out.
So they were here a much more complete breakthrough moment. Um, yeah. It, it, it strikes me listening to this, and it has before, like, oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, we're not even at the end of the first part yet. Yeah. I, I mean, that sounds so much like it could be the climax of the entire, uh, the entire symphony. Right. And yeah. there's, there's uh, more, more coming. Far more to come. And it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's such a, a masterful yeah. narrative technique to expose us to what will eventually be an entire movement of itself of not only this D major now, the correct key, but this, this triumph. And importantly, again, in real time, this is hard to hear, but that, that ending chorale that we, we hear, we hear the notes... very slow in this triumphant manner and we don't know it yet but skipping ahead many movements that will become the predominant movement of the last the predominant theme of the last movement and so he's given us this little foreshadowing um, an excellent excellent uh, moment I think maybe the most important moment in, in the piece and then characteristic Mahler just moments later to, to signal that we haven't actually arrived. We're still in the first part, the part of despair or of doom. We hear a collapse exactly the same as the first movement. We get this cataclysm and a sputtering out of, of the end of this movement to tie this with what came before. Let's just listen to that, the very end of this, this movement right after this triumphant chorale. So it's similar. It sounds a little bit like that first movement moment, right, where it, it crashes and collapses. Yeah. I read one program note. They call it a cruel joke. A cruel joke. I think it's ex an excellent... As you mentioned, there's kind of this irony or this cruel irony in in what happens to you as a listener when you feel like you've you've triumphed and that's the moment when actually it leads to the biggest cataclysmic collapse. Let me, let me ask, uh, I, I don't know if this is a, a good time, but a, a broader point. Uh, I, I told the colleague I was uh, doing this with you and he said, uh, he listens to a lot of Baroque music, he said, um, is it true that all Mahler sounds alike? And I said, I, I said no, you're thinking of Vivaldi. Cause, <laughs> uh, I, I've been saying that Vivaldi didn't write 500 concertos. He wrote one concerto 500 yes. times. Um, but I said, no, not all Mahler sounds alike. From one moment to another, uh, it sounds different. But it always sounds like Mahler. I, I yeah. get the feeling that you, you could put me, I mean, not an educated listener, in the middle of any symphony and hear, you know, a few passages and I'd say, well, that's, that's Mahler. So, so what is it that's so distinctively Mahlerian about it? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. And I think... You, everything is is right first of all it's it's actually on a large scale his very limited output is incredibly diverse in terms of his symphonic 
his structures, the narratives of his symphonies and stuff like that. If you look at a composer like Bruckner, a contemporary of Mahler, Bruckner really pretty much wrote the same symphony ten times and, and just gave him, gave him different numbers. But as you mentioned, every Mahler symphony is an entirely different world of its own. I think where the Mahlerian sound comes in and how you can immediately recognize Mahler is some of the finer details of things like Mahler very often marks, you hear swells, you hear things that jut out in the music, you often hear sounds that feel uh, outside of, of what we might expect from a standard symphony. We, we mentioned we'll get to the slapstick wood clapper in the third movement, but he often has the strings hit the, uh, the string instruments hit their strings with the bow, the wooden part of the bow. Um, and there's also this kind of blending of folk music with music from the classical idiom, with uh, highly expressive and romantic music. And I think that's, it, it is true. When you're listening to Mahler, you can immediately place that this is Mahler. I was I, I was listening to the Eighth Symphony last night, which is the the most odd symphony in his output and sounds the least like Mahler. And still, it, it's unmistakably Mahler. And but I, I think that's what makes his music uniquely interesting is that there's a clear stylistic language, but also every symphony is its entirely own narrative structure. I mean, the, the symphonies we've broken down so far, they all have different numbers of movements. They have different forms. Again, if we take a composer like Bruckner, every Bruckner first movement is a sonata. Every Bruckner second movement is a slow movement. Every Bruckner third movement is a scherzo. Yeah. And, uh, but that's interesting. I, um, I would side with you that Mahler is far more diverse than Vivaldi, although Vivaldi's an excellent composer as well. So, so we'll go on to our, uh, our second part now, the third movement, um, massive scherzo movement. Um, and interestingly, we've talked already a little bit about what a scherzo form is. It's scherzo trio, scherzo. And this is, a, a, as I mentioned, a massive movement with actually a very interesting form. It has some scherzo elements, but it also has some sonata elements of having two themes that are contrasted, developed, blended, um, and so in a way, it's, it's like a fusion of the first two movements. It's a new part, and we've taken both of the forms of the, the first part and blended them together to make one movement that, that contains both. Um, let's listen to the opening of, of this movement. Totally different world from, from the utmost pessimism and, and despair to seemingly overwhelming joy. Yeah, so we, we hear a lot of this jovial type music and we then come to our 
what we might think is our first trio uh, or our second theme if, if we're in a sonata, our, our contrasting music. And we'll listen to a little bit of that. Very, very different, as Mahler is inclined to do, from, from the music of, of the opening. music we get there yeah and it's interesting Mahler for this second theme this trio we get sort of a waltz the 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 Viennese dance of choice he was of course living in Vienna at the time but as we've mentioned many times before a lot of Mahler's waltzes or Lendler as they're sometimes called they're kind of overdone they're a little sappy they're not the clean aristocratic dance that we might expect from a Viennese waltz. They're actually much more rustic, peasant-like, and possibly even poking fun at this idea of buttoned-up Viennese society. And so we hear that pretty strikingly here in, in, the, in the trio. So then we hear more of this, this scherzo music. We get a passage, a, a, a wild passage where we have a fugue. I mentioned Mahler was interested in Bach at this time, and Bach was the master of the fugue, which is different voices entering with the same idea one after another. It's a very complicated and difficult musical form to write. And then, and then we get an important moment, which I think hopefully uh, 20 minutes after the fact might clarify our, our, if we remember back to the second movement, that moment where it felt like we froze time and we heard the cellos by themselves. Because in the same, we're in the beginning of the development section of this, this scherzo, and at exactly the same moment that we got that cello breakthrough, we get a similar breakthrough, a different character, but it also feels like we've frozen time for a moment. And so if we, this is, this is very arcane and our listeners don't need to worry about this too much, but this was the subject of an entire paper I wrote in college, so I feel like I should mention it. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I, I wrote a very long and uh, probably unreadable paper about how the third movement of this symphony is, is, is a kind of direct recomposition of the second and a very different character, but we have these two themes. We have development, and in exactly the same spot we get this frozen time passage and indeed much of the music that follows mirrors the the second movement so here's that analogous passage here in the in the third movement
So it's, it's, it, it is, uh, I say that, I hadn't picked that up. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of what happened in the second movement. I'm, I'm uh, curious, I mean, usually I think of the scherzo as almost an interlude. I mean, you say, so in Bruckner, it's, uh, okay, it's the third uh, third movement. It's like, catch your breath and then right. moving on. And in, in this uh, symphony, it's it's enormous and it's central. It's the only one of the five movements that's designated as a part on its own. Yeah. I, I assume that was all very conscious. Yeah, certainly conscious, but it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing that he called this movement this is the first movement that he labeled as a scherzo. Yeah. And it's very unscherzo like in many ways. He had written some very quintessential scherzos that occupied the place that you mentioned of kind of a breath catcher. And it's one of these moments where Mahler gives us a marking that almost the marking itself is somewhat sub- subversive or meant to confuse yeah. Yeah. because the music of the opening and a lot of the music of this, the idiomatic music of this, uh, of this third movement is scherzo like, right, right. but as you mentioned, scherzos normally don't occupy this massive yeah. portion of a symphony and the form, as we've mentioned, is, is more of a sonata, which we'd expect from a massive first movement, a massive finale, or something like that. And so he's taken the idea of, it's a, the ultimate Malerian move. His first labeled scherzo is really, in many ways, not a scherzo. Yeah, and actually a recomposition. And also, it's, it's interesting that the two first movements of the symphony, the first and second movement, both have scherzo-like elements as well. In fact, the, the first movement actually kind of unfolds in a scherzo form. And so we've, we've flipped on its head everything that we might expect. We begin with a kind of scherzo, but idiomatically first movement. We've come to a formal first movement, idiomatically a scherzo. It's yeah. one of many, many Malarian attempts to overthrow some rules that we've set up for ourselves. So we get this breakthrough moment. It feels like time gets gets frozen. We hear a long passage of of development of these ideas, um, and then, of course, in our sonata form, if we're in that, we're going to come to some sort of recapitulation where we come back to the beginning. And I want to play the passage right before that, through when we hear the recapitulation, because. As we teased earlier, we hear some interesting percussion instruments like a slapstick, and it's a very important passage in this, in this movement.
often was criticized for his use of like very weird and seemingly pedestrian percussion instruments. Um, I, I just I pulled out my book here because I, I, we hear this rhythm that the slapstick plays, bump, 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 which is a very characteristic rhythm of uh, dance of death, totentanz as it's called. And there's a quote from Mahler that was saying that this movement is like being in the bright light of day at the zenith of life. But he also mentioned that this movement features um, some this this idea. There's this idea uh, in Latin, which I'm not gonna butcher. But in the midst of life, we are in death. Is this idea? And it's as we mentioned before, at these moments of joy, there's pain. That there's so even in this overwhelmingly exuberant scherzo, we hear actually death-infused music. Interesting. Yeah. So we. We hear the recapitulation and we, um, we hear these themes that we've been introduced to combined. They, um, he, he really masterfully weaves them together as Bach would do in this kind of uh, incredible compositional way of, of connecting all three of the ideas he's presented with us. We hear another one of those uh, horn breakthrough moments and that's our key that we've somehow now maybe departed a little bit from the, the second movement and we're, we're forging our own way and we come to a final coda a, a thrilling coda but I'm going to play this for you as well because it mirrors the passage that we just listened to and again we get that at the very end of this exuberant scherzo we get that same death dance idea So at the most triumphant, fast, bombastic moment of the symphony, we also hear that bump, 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 again and the same imposing mm-hmm. kind of foreboding percussion. And so interesting end to the movement because, again, I think that gives us some sort of semantic clue that you mentioned about the second movement. There's this breakthrough moment that feels like that could end the symphony. This feels like it could end the symphony, but we have this kind of death dance uh, and we've get, we've been given this clue from the outset that this is supposed to be some sort of Beethoven fifth esque narrative where we get, we'll get to triumph. And so we want to get to, to true triumph without some sort of uh, undertone of, of death or despair. Yeah. So then we, uh, any thoughts on that movement? Should we, Trudge on. Yeah, sure. Yeah, excellent. So we, we then come to probably the most famous movement of the symphony, maybe Mahler's most famous movement uh, in, its, in, in any symphony, his Adagietto. As we mentioned, he had recently met his, his then-to-be, soon-to-be wife, um, Alma, and 
he wrote this adagietto as a kind of love song to her. Uh, many of his subsequent pieces would also be love songs to her, but this one is particularly famous. Um, I was, this is no better time than now to ask you, you were, you were telling me that there's another famous, uh, piece of music inspired by Alma Mahler, and I couldn't guess what it was. So yeah, you, you mentioned, um, I can't even remember, uh, her, her prior Z- love, uh, <laughs> who, uh, Zemlinsky's Lyric Symphony, who was, who's a kind of C-list composer who is Alma's teacher. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I said I had something in mind much more lowbrow much later, uh, and it was a song called uh, Alma by uh, Tom Lehrer. Oh, really? Around 1960, the... Uh, the, the the famous uh, comical uh, songwriter. So, uh, <laughs> uh, well, because, you know, Alma, I mean, she went from uh, Mahler to uh, Walter Gropius, and, and she, she didn't believe in allowing an interregnum, as I understand it. Uh, I mean, she went from the other guy. She didn't tell the other guy that she was engaged to Mahler before she broke it off, and then she had a fling with Gropius, and then uh, Gropius, the great architect, and uh, then... Um, uh, got tired of him, I gather, and uh, went to Franz Werfel, the uh, uh, the author, and there were some others. So when she died, Tom Lehrer was so fascinated by the obituary, he wrote uh, a song about her, which uh, here, it's, the lyrics include, Alma, t- t- I, I can't come close to singing, <laughs> Alma, tell us all modern women are jealous, which of your magical wands got you Gustav and uh, Walter and Tom? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Lyrics are are, are are wonderful, but yeah. I need to go. I need to go listen to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Right, right. So. But as you mentioned, I mean, a, a somewhat tortured relationship because she was the uh, Cleopatra of sorts of of early twentieth century yeah. Vienna. She made the way around of every famous artist, musician, yeah. and she was in every social circle, but also. Um, quite notably flirtatious and that being said sorry oh no I was going to say she also was a a songwriter and uh, I think she was uh, very frustrated because at first Mahler did not support uh, yeah uh, support her at all yeah and uh, later when when he realized he was about to lose the Gropius he became uh, he became more supportive so right well it's it's I think it goes a little bit both ways it's a lesson probably to all of us that uh, she was a little flirtatious yeah. but he also was yeah. from the sounds of it tough to deal with yeah. and insisted that she structure her entire life around his very rigid composing schedule yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah so but it, they, you know it, it, because it struck me I mean I mean the music is incredibly tender at, uh, at times and yet there's uh, at times also as one would expect I guess in there's a heaviness to it at times and attention yes. to it, uh, and and so uh, I w- we'll talk about it. I mean, it's been used uh, for other purposes, not uh, not as a love song, but it um, it seems to have worked. Yeah, you know, it does seem to have worked for for the for the yeah. time being, at yeah. least. Yeah. But as you mentioned, um, I'm not going to play too much of of this particular movement because I think people it's it's an excellent listen, and just people yeah. can go listen. But I want to point out one moment that. Uh, in the middle, where as you mentioned, it's it's passionate, it's almost heavy, and he's taken. Let me, I'll play this moment, and I'll show you where he's stolen this from and kind of repurposed it in his own Malerian way.
So in this passage, Mahler is actually quoting uh, an opera that he would have conducted many hundreds of times, one of the most famous love stories of the 18th century, Tristan and Isolde by Wagner. And there's a moment in that opera, it's been referred to as the gaze motif or the moment when Tristan looks on Isolde for the first time and, and falls in love with her. And that's the exact motif that Mahler is using here. Let's listen to what that sounds like just very quickly from Tristan. So yeah, in, in Tristan, we hear the motif. And here in the Adagietto, we hear. But I think as, as you mentioned, one thing that keys us into, this is definitely Mahler, and you can tell that it's Mahler right off the bat, is this Wagner moment. It's this long phrase that continues it feels like you're going on for ages. In in Mahler, every one of these notes has a passionate swell on it, and so it feels impulsive, it feels uh, passionate, and key, it clues us into this idea that um, that this is this is really Mahler. You were also mentioning to me about the um, the, the tempo of this yeah, movement, yeah. yeah, and kind of the idea that uh, the heaviness of yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because I think in uh, later years it's come to be thought of as more as a dirge, and that's in part, uh, it, it was used notably at a few fun funerals, uh, Sergei Kusevitsky of, uh, uh, and uh, Bernstein played it, as I understand it, the funerals of Kusevitsky and Robert Kennedy, and then it was played at Bernstein's yeah. funeral. Um, uh, but, and then most notably in the uh, movie uh, uh, Death in Venice. Right, uh, which, as you said, is topical. <laughs> very topical because it's in a, in a, in a plague. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, uh, well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's interesting that um, apparently Alma, uh, according to Alma, Mahler uh, sent her a, a, a poem saying something, on the, uh, something like, I can only lament to you. My longing and love, so the yeah. sort of love is uh, is pain, and uh, it struck me that um, I mean maybe the use in death in Venice was was just right because it was a love of sorts, but I, but a very very painful uh, um, sense sense of it. But uh, so I'm I'm just wondering, as I understand it, conductors have tended to play it slower and slower over time yeah. to emphasize the dirge like aspect, and I, I wonder what you think about that. The conductor is is faced with a difficult tempo choice in this particular piece because, as with much of Mahler, who was a conductor himself, he gives a very specific but also very conflicting markings all the time. Yeah. This movement is it's called adagietto, yeah. which means kind of little adagio yeah. or something, and presumably that modifier means faster than yeah. adagio because right. adagio is a slow tempo marking, but we get about 10 markings in the first 20 measures of the piece saying, sehr langsam, very slow, wieder äußert langsam, again, really slow. 
don't push the tempo slower. Mm-hmm. So all of his tempo markings indicate as slow as possible, it seems, but then it's an adagietto. And as you mentioned, if you take it too slow, it becomes funerary almost, yeah. and it's really a love song. And so people differ enormously. The, mm-hmm. the length of performance of this piece can be anywhere from, I think, 7 to 12 minutes Which or something like remarkable, that. remarkable, yeah. Yeah. I saw that one um, a Mahler uh, scholar um, uh, said that it should be at a tempo that could be, uh, which could be sung in yeah. 12 minutes. It's just too slow. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it, it is kind of a, a song in a yeah. way. and But yeah, it's Bernstein, for example, the, the recording I'm using here, it takes yeah. it very, very yeah. slow. Yeah. Um, but others, in fact, sadly, the piece that we were... Uh, scheduled to do at the ISO where, where I, I work a couple of weeks ago that, that got canceled mid rehearsal cycle was Mahler five. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't get to do the performances, but the conductor who was with us, uh, that week was taking a very fast tempo. Uh-huh. And so it was probably more close to yeah. seven minutes, but yeah, everyone, everyone differs on this idea. Yeah. So let's, let's just listen to the very end of this adagietto as it connects to the last movement. We finally got into the last movement and, Interestingly, we've been talking about these these parts and the, the, the adagietto and the last movement form these parts. And I can't think of two more different movements in terms of character, but we'll hear how they connect in, in some other ways. So, so, yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, and it ties into the connection. One of the things that's so striking about this movement is that it's all strings with a harp. Yes, and, yeah. And... Um, and, and so it's in contrast with all the the, the bluster, both before and and, uh, and after. And um, I'm wondering, did uh, and to me, I, it seems to me that gives it greater power. It's interesting because it's it's one piece that's been played on its own, which of course yeah. is wonderfully effective there. But I think even in the middle, it somehow gets greater power. But is that? I, is that um, uh, is there any other uh, example of that, that of, of, of a movement in an ordinary symphony that all of a sudden is just just strings? Uh, oh, you know, harp is a string. Yeah, th- that's actually um, there must be, and I'm now yeah. I'm I'm trying to think. There was there's no real precedent for that um, in the in the music of uh, Beethoven and and yeah. Mozart and and pre-Beethoven because because really they they didn't alter that much the forces that were given to them but let me think about that a little bit because I I imagine but as you mentioned it is a real um, it's a moment of I'm, I'm, I'm going back there is a uh, I'm thinking of, for example, Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique mm-hmm. uses a very small complement of musicians for the first three movements and then a massive yeah. brass section and percussion mm-hmm. section for the last two. But, you're, you're, I mean, regardless, it's incredibly notable that we've gone to essentially this chamber orchestra yeah. for a movement. And as you mentioned, this is a standalone piece. It's played as a standalone piece often, but... I think it gives some sort of narrative uh, context to, as you mentioned, what comes before and after. Because as we said, right at the end of the third movement, we're still left with this notion that uh, something is wrong. There's this death-infused rhythm that we heard. And so 
some sort of moment of respite before the ultimate finale is going to come. It's actually very similar in a way to the fourth movement of the also five movement second symphony, which is a short miniature feels much more chamber orchestra esque before the massive fifth movement. So here's the very end of this adagietto as we, we go into the, the fifth movement. So I just want to point out one thing about that ending because we hear towards the end we hear um, the strings playing that's how the, the last few bars go and we end at this and really the last note we hear is this an A if we want to give it a name but then the first note we hear of the last movement, and you're supposed to play these two movements, ataka, where you don't take any pause. And I'll play for you the beginning of the last movement, and you'll hear this A, this lonely A played by the violins, picked up by the horn and transformed into something totally different for the, the final movement. So we hear the, the horn pick up that note. And then we hear. And suddenly we're in a different key. We're not in F major, but D major, the key that we've been aiming for. And incredibly hard to notice. This is why I pointed it out way back in the second movement. But we hear the oboe. All of the themes from the movement that we're going to hear are presented in this very, as you mentioned earlier, this kind of whimsical opening. It feels like people are improvising. But these are all the themes that we're going to use in this movement. And the oboe plays. And I just want to play for us one more time the, the 
key moment in that breakthrough of the second movement and just listen to to the melody that the brass play at the top of this this chorale. So we actually, we hear the same, we've already heard this melody. Foreshadowed for us an hour before. Mm -hmm. So then we get a, this is called a, the movement is titled Rondo Finale. And again, kind of breaking a lot of the molds of what we might expect. We get some Rondo elements. A Rondo is kind of like a pop song form of chorus verse chorus verse we get something that returns many times but we also have something of a sonata where we have these themes that get developed we have a development and a recapitulation and so again none of the major movements of this symphony have a really defined form he's kind of fusing a lot of different elements in this in this piece so I'll play a, a passage that comes just shortly after this because a lot of this movement is, like we heard in the third movement, fugal, meaning that different voices enter and it's kind of almost a riotous, ruckus, fugue movement where he's taken the ideas of Bach and exploded them into this massive, frantic uh, last movement. So here's one of those many passages. Yeah, so we hear a lot of our themes passed around. Much of this movement alternates between the music of the opening and the music of this this fugue idea. And if you want to spend, you know, eight hours in quarantine analyzing all the ways he transforms all these various themes, uh, it's it's an interesting exercise to go through and look at all of this. But we then come to a, a really key moment towards the end of the movement where we're transitioning back to our chorus, our recapitulation, and we hear uh, this big buildup and we come to our rondo theme again. And I want to play that for you because much like the second movement where we got a fake breakthrough triumph and then we get a real breakthrough triumph, a similar thing happens in this last movement and it, it makes us think that something is coming but we haven't quite quite arrived there yet.
So we, we hear this triumphant music come again and again. It feels like we, we get a little bit of lack of resolution. It goes back to this kind of comfortable sounding, sounding music. So we hear more of these same ideas. They're recapitulated. And then we hear the same transition music like we heard to get back to this comfortable movement music from the opening. But this time we have a very different... This is towards the very end of the movement, and we have a very different result of this, this buildup. And what we hear is, in fact, what we've been aiming for for so much of the symphony, this final chorale that we were shown a, a brief glimpse of way back an hour ago in the, the end of the second movement. come to the climactic moment of the whole symphony and again that same idea that we heard the in the second movement the oboe introduced very innocuously at the beginning of this movement has been transformed into the the triumph of this this very last moment in the symphony interestingly though and I'm curious to get your take on uh, the very ending let me just play because this actually is not the very ending and what comes after this is 30 seconds of crazy music, something that's puzzled me for many years is he could have really easily ended the symphony right there with what we've been aiming for, but it almost is like, yet again, like the third movement, like the second movement, we get an ending that we don't expect. So let's, let's listen to the very ending, and then I'm curious what the, what the takeaway actually is of all of this. <laughs>
Yeah, it, it's. Um, I, mean, I mean, it's thrilling, and then there's a little bit of a pause. And yeah. One of those uh, cascades he likes to throw right. in. I, that's. I, I don't know what the term. No, that's the term. Yeah, is, but, uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's sort of like I'm going to give you the big finish, but there's still going to be a little bit of a curl cue at the. Uh, at yeah, the and it's and it's it's almost. It feels to me like clownish music almost, yeah. and it's yeah. and it's like uh, silliness and. Uh, and interestingly, I was just noticing we were reviewing yesterday or two days ago the the end of the seventh symphony, which is also a rondo finale. Um, and both this movement and the last movement of the seventh have been like widely criticized by people like Adorno and other other critics for being too over the top, too uh, optimistic, bombastic. The seventh ends in exactly the same manner. Right before the last note, we get this weird chord and then bang it ends and I wonder um it it leaves me wondering what the what the takeaway from this movement but from this entire symphony is if we've achieved this this triumph that we've set out to find or or not yeah Yeah. it almost has a dessert like quality yeah I I mean the 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 passage you played before was which which just always to me has a uh conveys the image of the sun just bursting through. Um, I, I guess it was the big climactic moment. Yeah. And there's the little... Right. It's, it's almost like you've <laughs> you've been served a, a yeah. big five-course yeah. meal yeah. and then they bring you like a little chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, so that brings us to the end of, of the symphony. Any uh, final takeaways or... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I, I said to you before. I, I think I'm I'm glad I don't inhabit Mahler's psyche. But yeah, uh, right. But uh, um, <laughs> um, it, 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 whatever torment led to this, uh, we're the beneficiaries of it. Right. Uh, 120 years uh, later, and will be for uh, centuries to come. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, it's 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 a testament to the fact that a lot of a lot of the greatest pieces of music produced under incredible turmoil. Yeah. And yeah, as you mentioned, clearly uh, a man who was, who was tormented in some way. And we see that developed for even his most passionate moments of yeah. love clearly have some insecurity and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. associated with them. Well, with that being said, I, we, we've come to the end. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. I had a great time. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. and Thanks so much. Hopefully, I think we've kept our eight feet of distance. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm hoping that, you know, we can get back to listening to Mahler Symphonies live, too. Maybe get back to some, some Michigan basketball soon. <laughs> We're both Hope fans, so. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame to lose the season so much. but uh, You know, uh, I was... Two days before everything started shutting down, I was planning on the Big Ten tournament. It was in Indianapolis, oh, and, 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 and so sure. I was going to oh, go. Wow. But yeah, yeah. Alas, oh, there'll be n- other years. But uh, no, I was thinking I, I keep the TV on with sports a lot, and not, nothing, nothing I want to watch now. But uh, it's good. Uh, it's good. To be, old sports events I don't want to see, but uh, listening to music I've heard many times before. That, that there you tire. go. There yeah. you go. Well, that's that's what I'm I'm hoping that people can take some time to listen to some Mahler. So, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back soon.